Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark, and good morning, everyone, and welcome to the 423rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I'm Dr. Erica Reamer, sitting this morning for Chuck Buck, who will be returning next week. Today we are joined by Tim Powell, who will anchor the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk. Lori Johnson, Beth Wolf, and I will all be discussing severe malnutrition prompted by yet another OIG report. And Terry Fletcher has our lead story, where she breaks down the differences between preventative care and E&M services when coding office visits. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk. Thanks, and today we're going to be talking about COVID-19 finding the villages. The Villages in Florida was recently highlighted in the news because of the political views of some of its residents that were expressed during a rally. The Villages refers both to a census-designated place, kind of like a city without being called a city, as well as an age-restricted, meaning over 55, community that includes parts of Lake and Marion counties. The Villages is 45 miles northwest of Orlando. Between 2010 and 2017, the Villages was the fastest-growing metropolitan area in the United States, growing 32.8% from 94,000 in 2010 to 125,000 in 2017. According to U.S. Census data released in March 2018, the Villages was the 10th was 10th in the annual list of fastest-growing metropolitan areas in the United States. The Villages is in the news recently for a more troubling trend. Over 1,100 of the 125,000 residents of the Village have tested positive for COVID-19. In a brutal political firestorm where the wearing of masks has become the litmus test of loyalty, the battle to contain the virus in an elderly community has become a difficult struggle. Jeffrey Lowenkron, the chief medical officer of the villages, said cases are increasing and urge residents to take proactive steps to reduce the risk of disease transmission recently in an email. Unfortunately, the email does not go on to tell residents what those proactive steps might be. The golf courses are still full, and the residents are still getting together to play cards. Some residents are nervous about the spread but feel socially pressured not to take precautions. The village is a wealthy wealthy community, and currently hospitals are able to provide care to the residents that require treatment. When there is a vaccine, uh, for the vaccine to really work, more than 70% of the people in any given area are going to need to take the vaccine to eliminate infections. Let's hope that politics and disinformation do not prevent us from defeating COVID-19, and for goodness sakes, wear your mask. Thanks, Tim. And, you know, that 70% you're talking about is assuming that the vaccine is 100% effective. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, July 21st. Last week's release of the 2021 official guidelines corroborated my premise that there is no 711.59 in a pandemic. And you are listening to the 423rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. About 3 million cases of pneumonia are diagnosed annually in the U.S. Considering the pervasiveness of the disease, ICD-10 CM coding for it should be a slam dunk, right? Not so. 
Pneumonia comes in a variety of forms, including bacterial, viral, fungal, and parasitic, and it's frequently accompanied by other health conditions, such as COPD and COVID-19. Given so many variables, there's a high likelihood of confusion and costly coding mistakes. A new ICD-10 monitor webcast, Pneumonia, Clinical Indicators, and Accurate ICD-10-CM Coding, presented by acclaimed coding and CDI expert Glorianne Bryant, is live this Thursday, July 23rd. Register now for the guidance your coders and CDI staff need to ensure correct ICD-10-CM coding. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn more. Here now is Terry Fletcher with today's lead story on preventative care versus E&M problem-oriented services. Thank you, Erica. Good morning, everyone. Choosing a proper office visit code can become confusing unless one understands the rules separating preventative medicine and evaluation and management coding. Preventive, preventative medicine codes are meant typically for asymptomatic patients. In order to assign a preventative code, a comprehensive evaluation must be documented the scope of a preventative visit depends on the patient's age and screening tests fitting the age of the patient. The CPT codes 99381 to 99397 for comprehensive preventative evaluations are age-specific, beginning with infancy and ranging uh, through patients age 65 and over for both new and established office visits. These ENMs may be reported by any qualified physician or other qualified healthcare professional, such as an NP, APP, or PA. Components of a preventative visit are more straightforward, unlike documenting problem-oriented visits on the visit codes 99201 to 215. These involve complicated coding guidelines and more of a problem-oriented visit. Again, with preventative services, you need a comprehensive history and exam findings, a description of the status of either chronic, stable, or problems that are not significant enough to require additional work, according to CPT, notes concerning the management of minor problems that do not require additional work, notes concerning age-appropriate counseling, screening labs and tests, and possible vaccines appropriate for age and risk factors. According to CPT, a comprehensive history must be obtained as part of the preventative visit and no chief complaint or present illness as its focus. Rather, it requires a comprehensive system review and comprehensive or interval past family and social history, as well as a comprehensive assessment, history, and pertinent risk factors. These differ from the problem-oriented visits because they're based on age and risk factors other than a presenting problem that you need to address. Coverage for preventative visits vary by insurer, so it's important to be aware of the patient's health plan. Most plans limit the frequency of preventative visits to once a year, and not all tests are covered. Medicare does not cover the 99381 to 99397 codes, but they do have a preventative option in the welcome to Medicare visit and then the yearly annual well visit. And again, these are yearly health risk assessments or personalized prevention plan, different from the preventative exam components. With a newer chronic disease diagnosis, all labs and other tests ordered during a preventative visit may be considered screening, so it's important for your provider to document clearly if the test is for screening or for diagnostic purposes and needs a workup, otherwise denials could happen often. When billing for a preventative visit, it is legal to also bill for an evaluation and management service, an office visit code, if the patient warrants or wants a medical problem addressed at the time of their yearly physical exam. What you have to be careful of is a patient who presents with a well-controlled chronic condition with no complaints, no issues, and is just there to establish care. That may be considered a preventative visit to Medicare and commercial plan payers. An example of when to consider billing for a separate ENM service in addition to a preventative service would be an internal medicine physician sees an established Medicare-aged patient for their scheduled yearly exam, 
The patient did not mention any complaints when the appointment was made and stated that they wanted to be seen for an annual physical only. However, during the course of the visit, the physician determines that the patient has an enlarged prostate. This finding requires an evaluation and workup that is separate from a preventative history and physical service. If the internist finds a problem while performing the annual physical, and if the problem is significant enough to warrant additional testing, then the appropriate office visit code, 992-11-215, should also be reported with a 25 modifier to reflect that significant separately identifiable service, in addition to the preventative medicine service. Plenty of practice managers have been faced with the question of whether to bill for a preventative medicine visit or an ENM service. The answer is pretty simple. Bill to the intent of the visit. If the objective is to provide an annual asymptomatic physical, then a preventative medicine should be reported. If a physician is only managing a patient's medication, no changes, no concern, the patient's asymptomatic, then it may be appropriate to bill for preventative medicine. However, if a physician needs to make changes to that medication after finding out maybe it's causing side effects, utilize a proper evaluation and management visit to reflect the additional workup. And now it is a problem-oriented visit. I would encourage for best practices that you document two encounters in your EMR just to have the differentiation of the service. This is controversial. CPT references several subsections that talk about abnormalities and if it's encountered or pre-existing problem is addressed in the process of performing a preventative service and if the abnormality is significant significant enough to require additional work, then you can code the appropriate office visit in addition to the preventative. But it goes on to say an insignificant or trivial problem abnormality that is encountered in the process of performing the preventative medicine visit, which does not require additional workup and performance of the key components of an ENM service, that should not be reported. But only the physician can determine if the abnormality is significant enough to warrant two ENM services. Many times there's also a possibility of a double copayment for the patient as well. So it will be important to explain to the patient that there's a possibility that two separate services are being performed so they may expect additional charges, but it saves them the inconvenience of a second visit to address them both now. You just don't want to surprise patient with a visit that they're going to have to pay for because they do expect a free visit when coming in for preventative. CPT assistant weighed in on this topic as well and gave two examples of a preventative visit, again, that was age and gender appropriate. One was for a 33-year-old woman, may include a pap and pelvic, breast exam, BP check, counseling, maybe diet, exercise, exercise, substance abuse, and sexual activity. But would it be appropriate to bill for a second visit? Well, let's say during that visit that there was also an identifiable, palpable, solitary lump in the right breast. The physician finds this significant enough to require additional workup and to perform the key components of a problem-oriented visit. So yes, in this in this example, 99395 plus a 99 possibly 213 or 214 with a 25 modifier would be reported to relate to the breast lump problem. The best practices is to do what you can support should you be audited. Erica, back to you. Best practice is to practice good medicine and document it and get paid appropriately for it, don't you think? Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. And you can read Terry's exclusive report on this important subject in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Up next, we have a three-part feature on diagnosing and coding malnutrition in the face of a recent OIG report. You're listening to the 423rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by.
Over the past few months, the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic has created confusion about coding and documenting the deadly coronavirus. But here's good news. ICD-10 Monitor has teamed with Talk 10 Tuesday co-host Dr. Erica Reamer to offer COVID-19 guidance and education to help you and your team navigate the confusion. There are easy-to-read electronic coding flowcharts to provide coders with quick guidance to accurate and compliant code assignments. Plus, two on-demand webcasts, How to Capture and Code COVID-19 Correctly, and its follow-up, COVID-19 ICD-10-CM Coding, a deeper dive into questions and areas of confusion, all by Dr. Erica Reamer. These resources are part of the COVID-19 coding portfolio produced by ICD-10 Monitor to help you code accurately and compliantly during the pandemic. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn more. Today on Talk 10 Tuesday, we have a three-part series on malnutrition, and I'm going to start with my Talk Back segment. When I was a physician advisor, our system had a malnutrition crisis. Not that we had an explosion of unexpected cases. We were not getting the diagnosis captured when it was clinically present, relevant, and significant. When we created an electronic solution of having the provider attest to the dietitian consult, we decreased our 20% malnutrition query rate significantly. I know I am a broken record, but we must train providers to practice excellent medicine, making correct diagnoses, and then to document them in a codable format, including why they are clinically significant and how they are being evaluated, treated, managed, or monitored. The Office of Inspector General released a report last week entitled, Hospitals Overbuild Medicare $1 Billion by incorrectly assigning severe malnutrition diagnosis codes to inpatient hospital claims. There have been numerous previous audits by the OIG on other hospitals and systems regarding malnutrition, and this won't be the last either. Their findings consistently suggest that institutions are capturing severe protein calorie malnutrition inappropriately, and therefore considerable money has been overpaid. The essence of this case is that they reviewed a random sample of 200 claims from 224,175 claims from fiscal years 2016 and 2017 in which E41, nutritional marasmus, or E43, unspecified severe protein calorie malnutrition, were the sole MCC. They determined that 27 out of 200 claims, which is 13.5%, were correctly billed. For 164 claims, or 82%, they believed malnutrition was either not a legitimate diagnosis or was not of the severity asserted. The amount of estimated overpayments was $914,128. When they extrapolated the overpayments over the entire cohort, they arrived at a $1.024 billion at risk. The OIG report references the ICD-10-CM official guidelines for coding and reporting on page 3, detailing how the definition for other diagnoses indicates that an additional condition affects patient care in terms of requiring clinical evaluation, therapeutic treatment, diagnostic procedures, extends length of stay, or increases nursing care or monitoring needs. It also back-references UHDDS item 11B, adding all conditions that coexist at the time of admission. Severe PCM almost always coexists at the time of admission. I think the major issue is getting providers to document how it is affecting the patient and their management during the encounter. 
Historically, auditors used outdated malnutrition criteria from the WHO circa 1999, but they are now likely to use Aspen and or GLIM criteria. The clinician has some discretion to apply, apply a severity designation, but there must be some clinical basis. The two examples in the OIG report are consistent with their premise. Those cases were inappropriately coded with E43 when the documentation supported other levels of severity. If you were wrong, give the money back. Consider it a loan. However, I suspect there were other cases where severe PCM was documented, but the auditor disputed the clinical validity of the diagnoses. There are nefarious administrations who exhort providers to document conditions which are not present to increase reimbursement. But these are quite the exception to the rule. I think the more common scenario is the patient has the condition, but the provider doesn't bolster their diagnosis with enough details to sufficiently support it to satisfy the auditor's requirements. I have had providers tell me that it isn't in their purview to diagnose malnutrition. It is the dietitian's expertise. Malnutrition is clinically significant. It leads to difficulty healing from trauma or surgery and recovery from acute or chronic illnesses. Their skin needs extra attention and care to protect from skin breakdown. Providers shouldn't have to document this on every malnourished patient. It's well known. What they need to do is acknowledge the dietitian's consult and input, implement their their recommendations, and document the diagnosis in the plan. If they disagree with the dietitian's severity assessment, they need to detail why. COVID-19 is going to have to share the stage with malnutrition CDI right now, or hospitals are going to be hurting. Work on this now, or take backs will be coming. Now, Talk 10 Tuesday brings you Lori Johnson's coding report, and her focus is on malnutrition as well. Good morning, Lori. What do we need to know about the coding of malnutrition? Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. As you introduced, the um, Office of the Inspector General's report that random review of 200 claims, um, 173 were incorrectly assigned on based on the clinical documentation. And to me, I look at that as an 86.5% error rate, which is unacceptable. All forms of severe malnutrition are major complication comorbid conditions, or MCCs. Severe malnutrition is coded as E43 when it is unspecified protein calorie um, severe malnutrition. Quashiorcor is a form of severe malnutrition that affects infants and children and assigned E40. These children typically have a large protuberant belly due to inadequate protein intake. It is also known as edematous malnutrition. This condition is rarely found in the United States. Quashiorcor is a hierarchical condition category, or HCC, and can impact risk adjustment scores. Another type of severe malnutrition is nutritional marasmus, E41, which is also an HCC. This condition most commonly affects infants and children as well. This chronic undernourishment and is characterized by thinness and poor muscle development. The fourth type of severe malnutrition is marasmic quashiorcor, which is a combined form of marasmus and quashiorcor. This condition is coded E42 and is caused by acute and chronic protein deficiency. It occurs in children more frequently and is also an HCC. 
Severe malnutrition is a condition that impacts the DRG since it is classified as an MCC. It is understandable that the OIG would audit these claims after reviewing the clinical information and the frequency of reporting. This issue highlights a current prepayment and postpayment review of payers. They are using data analytics to monitor the frequency of diagnoses and procedures that impact reimbursement. When the frequencies change, they are investigating underlying causes. It is time for hospitals to begin analyzing cases that seem to be clinically inappropriate. Just because the provider documents the condition, there must be clinical support for that condition. I ask that you do your research and determine how frequently you have reported severe malnutrition in the past year. Does that clinical picture support the assigned codes? After you review your claims, it would be advisable to discuss the situation with the compliance department to, discern, to determine if you should self-report or not. This approach can be used for other conditions such as sepsis, hyponatremia, and toxic metabolic encephalopathy. Severe or self-reporting the errors is a much better approach for problem resolution. Remember that the codes depict the patient's severity of illness and intensity of service. With that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. I just have to say that I find it really hard to believe that 86% uh, error rate. Uh, I would really want to look at those charts myself and determine whether it was just a matter of doing suboptimal documentation as opposed to the patients not having the condition. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. For today's Tuesday Focus, we have Dr. Beth Wolf, my friend. Dr. Wolf is the medical director at Roper St. Francis Healthcare and a physician consultant for 3M, and we'll close out our three-part series on malnutrition. Beth? Thanks, Erica. Um, happy to be here. Um, I would also echo that although $1 billion is a big number, the more astonishing finding to me was that hospitals incorrectly documented and or coded severe malnutrition that 86.5% of the time. I mean, that's, that's almost unimaginable. Um, you know, I think uh, the examples driven by the OIG allude to the fact that in addition to auditing whether the diagnosis of severe malnutrition was actually documented by a hands-on provider, there was also attention given to clinical validation and specifically in the context of the effect on patient care. Again, there were only two examples given, and unfortunately, there was no mention in the full report of exactly what clinical standards were utilized beyond the coding guidelines of monitored, evaluated, treated impact to nursing care length of stay. So in 2017, many of us in CDI invested significant time and resources on our malnutrition validation processes. This was driven not only by the OIG work plans that were coming out at the time, but, but actual reports of recovery audits, as well as uh, a flood of managed care denials. I think it's time to dust off those policies and processes that you have and make sure that they're compliant and consistent. The first step is to circle back with your institutional experts, the registered dietitians. 
they're likely utilizing the 2012 Aspen criteria, but since GLIM did come out in 2018, I think it's worth revisiting. And renewed physician education is likely necessary, again, making sure to focus on the clinical significance documentation. And Eric, I agree, it doesn't have to necessarily be um, you know, laid out, but it has to be implied in the chart. Um, and I think most of the time we do that, but, but certainly there, there isn't room for opportunity. Also, don't forget to show your physician's CDI encoders where they can find the dietary notes in the medical record. Um, I often see where, where that's a, a barrier. In addition to the standardization and education, I would also consider monitoring the incidence of malnutrition documented, as was mentioned. This often parallels educational efforts. And for CDI programs, I would definitely audit your nutritional queries for compliance, as well as track the volume of malnutrition validation queries. If you see an uptick in the validation queries, you may need to do focused education for identified providers. If you're planning retrospective chart reviews, I would identify similar claims to what the OIG audited, those patients with severe malnutrition as their single MCC. Random selections are ideal if you have the time and resources, but if I was looking to find the charts at highest risk for not having documented clinical criteria or significance, I would focus on the patients with a shorter length of stay than expected. If you assist with clinical validation denials, um, definitely engage your dietary leadership in writing these appeals. Along the way, keep collecting evidence-based articles that support the clinical significance of malnutrition on morbidity and mortality in hospitalized patients. Uh, I often use these in my appeal letters as well as in peer-to-peer -peer appeals. Malnutrition is a serious diagnosis, and it does impact every aspect of the patient's health and care. Um, it's important to remember that it's not just a symptom of disease. Uh, it can be independently, independently treated with success. When all is said and done, CDI owns the question and providers own their answer. However, Erica, the penalties are steep if we don't hardwire a mechanism to ensure accuracy. And I thank you for, for letting me share some of my thoughts. Thank you, Beth. That was great. And I would like to actually comment on a few things you said and ask you a question. Number one, you were talking about if you're going to be looking at these, you should look at the ones where it's the only MCC. And a lot of those patients are surgical patients. And the, one of the, the issues that people have is that, A, surgical patients often have malnutrition, but B, it also really, when you change the tiers and you go up to the MCC tier, it's a lot of money. So you got to be really careful. The other thing I would suggest to, uh, to people is um, you should set up some sort of a, an automatic alert that if somebody is being diagnosed and coded with Quashiorcor or Merasmus uh, or Merasmic uh, Quashiorcor in the United States, somebody should look at that chart and do a second level review because that's very uncommon in the United States. My last comment um, that I'd like to make is that I tried finding the full report for like uh, probably 20 minutes until I finally discovered that the 13 pages with like five pages of appendixes was actually the full report, which is kind of shocking to me. You would think that I would be able to see more meat and see more examples, but that was it. Those are my comments, but I have a question for you. What would you specifically recommend that providers document to support their diagnosis. So if you, were, if you were counseling doctors and you were saying to them, here's the kind of things that I personally document when I am supporting, you know, when I have a patient with severe protein mal calorie malnutrition, what 
clinical indicators do you think that they should include in their documentation that's reasonable for them? Generally, the history itself supports the risk factors. I mean, usually these patients have underlying chronic comorbidities or oncologic diagnoses. Um, the second thing is, you know, a review of systems about weight loss. Ideally, you know, that should be in the physician's note. Um, you know, honestly, if um, we utilize the electronic record appropriately, I think this is one instance where using copy and paste and attributing uh, the weight loss and the percentage calculations to the nutrition and pulling that into our note um, is a reasonable effect effective, efficient way to get that information in there. Um, we do need to follow the treatment plan or, or explain why. And for severe malnutrition, if we're not suggesting tube feeds or TPN, you know, why not? Okay, so for, you know, advanced dementia patients, it may not be indicated um, or for other reasons. And then, you know, in terms of the clinical significance, again, if it is, you know, a diagnosis that results in a $10,000 increase in payment, um, you know, we have started writing queries about clinical significance if the treatment doesn't seem to match what would typically be expected. Um, it, it is a, a big ask for physicians, and I think historically we haven't felt like we can necessarily um, impact malnutrition with treatment, but our dietitians, you know, are coming with us on educational rounds, um, you know, to express that to physicians. And, and again, um, legitimize it as, as a diagnosis that the physician should really be paying attention to and managing. I think that's great. And, uh, you know, number one, I, a lot of hospitals have this system set up that anyone can um, request a dietitian consult. It does not actually have to be a physician order. So, like, the nurses or somebody else can actually do it as well. And I think that having the dietitian consult actually also supports the fact that there's malnutrition and you're utilizing resources. Um, and then, you know, to me, I think that physical examination, even when I was working in the emergency department, I would be able to note that there was temporal muscle wasting, that the patient appeared cachectic, and that um, they had a, a weak hand grasp. So the, all of those things really can support the fact that you think that this patient has, um, really has severe protein calorie malnutrition. We have one question. Why not also explain how malnutrition increases risk of poor healing, recovery from infection, or disease? Um, and that was our friend, Dr. Ron Hirsch. Uh, my opinion is that um, just like morbid obesity as a physician, I shouldn't have to document that morbid obesity is clinically significant because it is just part of the nature of medicine. It is a little frustrating that to think that we have to explain why um, malnutrition increases the risk of poor healing and recovery from infection of disease because that's well-known and well-documented in the literature. However, that would be an opportunity, I personally think, that your dietitians could actually get that into their consult um, so that the doctors don't actually necessarily have to be reiterating it. But I do believe that one of the things that's important is that doctors acknowledge the dietitian consult, and then they reflect that they are actually uh, agreeing with the diagnosis and that they are implementing the recommendations. That's going to be a wrap for our 423rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I would like to thank our panelists, Dr. Beth Wolf, Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, and Tim Powell. Remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. I will be off next week, but I'll be back in August. Until then, I'm Erica Reamer, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.